the concept of academic freedom has gone out the window. If I had Sinetra Gupta here, we'd have this discussion, which would go a bit like this. Yeah, they've had a go of us, but we're okay. You know, but what the problem is, is the people coming through have looked what's happened and gone, I can't speak out. Look what's happened to Sinetra Gupta or Carl Hennigan. I can't say the truth. So in the background, thousands of people email me, contact me, tell me all sorts of positions. And I'm going, can you go on the record for this? No, can't. I'll lose my job. People will lose the job in the NHS or in university for speaking out. Again, what does that say about society? Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Carl Hennigan. Carl is a professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford University. He is director of Oxford's Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. He's also a practicing GP. He's a clinical epidemiologist and he has studied and written widely on the care that patients receive from clinicians and how it might be improved. Carl has also raised some crucial and critical questions about the policy of lockdown over the past two years and he has argued for a more reasoned and evidence-based approach to the pandemic. So Carl, I want to start off by asking you about where we're currently at in relation to the Omicron variant, uh, the COVID uh, epidemic more broadly. And uh, I keep thinking to about three or four weeks ago when we were being told, courtesy of uh, the SAGE modelers and the newspaper headlines, which often focus on the worst case scenarios, we were being told that there could be 6,000 deaths a day at this point in January. And obviously, Nothing like that has happened. Those headlines may have scared lots of people, but they were not accurate at all. How do you explain the uh, the way in which Sage and others continually get this stuff wrong and the kind of impact that that wrong thinking has on people? Yeah, no, it's a very interesting question, Brendan, because if you go back to sort of the week of the 13th, it was a bit like, here we go again. And in fact, in that week, I got actually quite perturbed about this narrative that's emerging, that as we enter winter in the Northern Hemisphere with a seasonal pathogen, exactly like last year, what we see is cases taking off because the environmental features are correct. The fact we're indoors more often, we're meeting more often, means this is a particularly time of the year when acute respiratory pathogens take off and we have lots of infections. But the numbers, again, that were being banded around by the modelers just were at the real edge. It was almost like, we I know we've got bad numbers so far, but we're going to make them even worse this time to scare you into further restrictions. And, and it's interesting. Lockdowns only work if you're locked down right at the peak of the infections. So if we'd have locked down again this time, we would have had the clamour to say, look, these lockdowns are working, aren't they? Because you've got no reference or control group. Now, that creates for us a significant problem when you start to say, hold on a minute, we've had these doomsday scenarios, these predictions or projections, call them what you like, that have put us in a position to say, well, we've never even come close to any of these projections. 
we've been going back to November 2020. We had the Valence statement about the death, the deaths and cases. We got nowhere near that projection into 2021. But this one, I think, is a position where the modelers have, have actually gone a step too far. Now, it takes a lot to come out at that point in time and go, hold on a minute. Look, we need to be balanced in our approach. You can't keep having this doomsday prediction and assuming society can go forward. So when you looked at it, you go, hold on a minute. The data was quite clear coming out of South Africa that actually not only were cases plateauing, that actually they were making very clear statements. This is a milder variant. And also with that, they're saying you're completely overreacting. Yet we've still got our modelers, we've still got our scientific advisors pushing the government for further restrictions. What happened this time is that actually the government broke the link between the scientific advice and what happened next. And what we find ourselves now is in a completely different scenario. We've gone from 6,000 deaths a day, tens of thousands admissions to say, hmm, actually cases have peaked. Remembering in about nine of the last 10 years, cases rise into December and deaths rise in January from acute respiratory pathogens. We're talking about a doubling of admissions from August to December, January in, in unplanned respiratory admissions. We're talking about, on average, we see about four to 5,000 excess deaths in January compared to August. Now, when you understand the phenomena of what's happening, you start to then break it down and go, yes, what happens in January is we run into problems every year. Hmm. The question is, why has the NHS not grasped this nettle and said we need a flexible health service that increases capacity by about 20%, about 20,000 extra beds, particularly with an aging society? But what we find ourselves now is not only have cases plateaued, they're starting to come down. We've seen death not rise, but the particularly stunning statistic, I think, in all of this is the statistic of what's happened with the mechanical ventilation beds, which has completely stayed flatlined throughout this. And I think one of the things we could touch on is the problems with what I consider poor quality data drives poor quality decisions. So it's very hard when people say how many people have been admitted How many people have actually been admitted with a diagnosis of COVID compared to you turned up with a broken leg and, by the way, you tested positive compared to actually those with disease? So the the area to look at is the mechanical ventilation beds, which has stayed flatline, which is showing you that people with severe disease is not becoming a problem. And therefore, the government, in effect, has been vindicated in not following the scientific advice. So I want to um, get into this question of why this time around the government broke the link, as you say, between the bad data it was receiving and and its decision uh, not to push ahead with severe restrictions. Uh, But before we get into that, I want to ask you about how the modelling has been so dramatically exposed this time around. And my view is that this could prove to be a bit of a turning point for lots of ordinary people who will have seen those scary numbers from a few weeks ago and will now see the reality and will start thinking to themselves, I hope, why have we been listening to a certain group of experts at the expense of others? But one, one question I wanted to ask you in terms of just trying to untangle the question of why the modeling was so wrong is one of the people you mentioned there were the South African experts who were sending very clear signals and very rational signals to the UK and the rest of the world 
that Omicron seemed to peak quite speedily. It didn't lead to uh, severe illnesses, certainly not in comparison to earlier waves. Why do you think that was ignored? Were the South African experts just not taken seriously? Or are we now so addicted to doomsday thinking that we just went with that instead? How? Why do you think the South African experience just didn't cut through in our discussion? So the first thing is to say within evidence-based medicine, there's a clear hierarchy of what type of evidence you use to inform decision-making. At the very low end of that is opinion and my what I think. At the very high end is in terms of interventions is systematic reviews. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the key issues is that modeling sits outside of our normal processes within healthcare decision making. It only arises in a pandemic when in the very early stages you have very limited understanding of what's going on. And generally what it tends to do is overestimate the impact. And it does that for a couple of reasons very early on. It takes case fatality rates and assumes that's going to project onto the population. Whereas very early estimates are always based on the people in hospital and give you very high case fatality rates, 3%, 5%, which actually by the time you get to middle end of the pandemic, you're like, you've overestimated. What's happened in this pandemic is it's continued for on for two years when it should have been shut down last May in 20, very early on. Within about eight to 10 weeks, we say, right, we've used the modeling. Thank you very much. That's the end of it. But that somehow it's perpetuated a cycle. With that cycle comes the sort of fear and anxiety that the modeling's been used to say, here's where we're going to go next. Consistently, it's been wrong. It's missed very important issues. So for instance, the modeling didn't predict a seasonal effect in 2020, 2021. Only very late in the day did they say, oh, we've got the Kent variant, we've now got an impact. So it misses some important issues. Now, I can't explain why an organisation produces models with projections that are consistently wrong, and yet we go back to them in some respect. Because if you make a small error, or I make a small error, people will be picking up on it and trying to say to you, well, actually, there's your credibility gone. But somehow with modeling, it seems to be okay to make predictions that even when the, remember the one in November that came out, which the Telegraph covered, which we picked up in November, this is going back over a year ago. Now, we basically looked at it and said, by the time you've published it, it's also already tracking differently to what your projections were. So why haven't you validated it? Now, what normally happens with what we call clinical prediction rules is you derive them and then you validate it. So you might put a model out there and within seven days, you'd say, let's validate it with the actual data. And if it's not tracking correctly, you say, well, this is invalid. Now, most of the models, if you go and look at the one, so for instance, today, in terms of the Warwick model 30th of December hospitalizations, it was predicting by the 12th of January that it with the 50% severity, that's the midline, 13,500 hospital admissions, daily admissions. If I take the 100% sensitivity, it was picking, it was picking somewhere above 30,000. Now, we're nowhere near that number. And they're also saying with the presence of antivirals, with the presence of vaccines and the presence of boosters and a milder variant, we're going to have the highest admission load we've seen. I cannot explain 
why that's produced and why people think that's useful. Because actually what it will do is distort your priorities of where do you need to put your resources and how you manage this. And I, I actually think it's interesting. If you go back to the last pandemic in 2009, there was a government review. Dame Deirdre Hind ran the review and basically said, ministers need to clearly understand the shortcomings of models and interpret them in the context of they were significantly out then and as this time they were significantly out this time. Bird flu was another one where there were miles out. The same imperial group with bird flu predicted there would be 700,000 deaths in the UK, despite the fact that a moment in time worldwide there was less than 100 deaths. So there's been a significant track record. Mm -hmm. I wonder in our current status with the social media, the way we go on news is we tend to be people who will click on and be attracted to messages of fear and anxiety. So it's self-perpetuating. I think we buy into the problem. But I actually think what's happening now is the inquiry is already starting out there. People are starting to say, actually, we're understanding lockdowns don't help us. This messaging doesn't help us. And it's not preparing us to protect the most vulnerable in society. Think about those people. The other thing that modelling does, it, 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 it overestimates the effects of non-pharmaceutical interventions. It doesn't actually take the evidence. It takes things like masks and says, well, if you're wearing masks, we'll have a significant impact that will give us a significant effect, which isn't matched by the high-quality evidence. It also tells you things like, if you do X, you'll get the cases down to this level and we'll be able to manage them and keep them low. Well, we know that's not been the case. It's not nowhere in the world has that been effective. There are only a couple of places you could probably refer to now in the world and say, hmm, New Zealand is one of them, but that's a country that's 2,000 kilometers away from anywhere. The second is China, and if you, it's hard to understand whether you can trust the data in China, but if you also see they've got a huge problem with what's their exit game here. Yeah. Because, unfortunately, whatever you do, you increase the time point for which we're all susceptible. So you increase the number of people who are susceptible to the virus. So when you have an exit wave and you go back to normality, all then people are suddenly vulnerable. So I think this is a a crucial point which has to be now fed in because I think what will happen is we may move on and forget and then Mm -hmm. this problem will reoccur. But somehow the modelling has to play a role in actually steering us in the wrong direction. Spiked is free and it always will be. There's no paywall and no subscriptions. We want to reach as many people as possible. But to do that, we need your help. If you support the work that we do, why not become a regular donor? As little as £5 a month is enough to make a huge difference. Whatever you can give is greatly appreciated, especially with all that's going on in the world at the moment. If you want to make a regular donation, then all you have to do is go to spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. That's a very useful description of the whole situation, really. And But I want to ask you specifically about the Omicron experience, because as you've indicated already, 
it was different this time around. I mean, the models were, if anything, crazier than before. Um, incredibly, the media lust for those scary stories was uh, as strong as ever back in December, in mid-December. But the difference is that the government didn't do what the fear mongers wanted it to do, certainly not in England. And we didn't have the lockdown or the severe restrictions that lots of people, especially at, at not, not only at Sage, but at Independent Sage and the kind of tub thumping media as well, we didn't go into the kind of restrictions that they wanted. So the government obviously listened in a different way this time. Why do you think that is? I mean, I'm sure people like you had some influence. I know that you've had conversations with government officials. Um, have they just woken up to the destructiveness of continually shutting down society? Or is there a broader appreciation now that modelling alone is not a useful way to think about the future and to organise society itself? So I think it's a bit of all of them and maybe some other features. So let's, let's start with the cost. I mean, it, very early on to some people, is the, the, the number one decision you had to come to is when do you decide the virus is endemic? Because if you remember, most of 2020, people said, what we're going to do is we're going to suppress it out of existence, we're going to keep cases below 100, and we're going to get back to normal by November 2020. There were people like me saying, that is completely unrealistic because this virus is now out there. And that's the turning point in your thinking. You have to start to go, we accept the virus is out there, it's global, and we can't suppress it. But that was probably a year wasted with a zero COVID group. And that was the number one mistake. The second is when you move into an endemic phase, you then have to go, okay, at what point are we going to realize we're running into problems with financial issues? So, for instance, the test and trace program in March will have to be decided whether we're going to spend another $18 billion on the test and trace for another year. And at some point, you're going to have to go, we can't afford it as economy. Because that money has to come back to some of the areas where we've diverted care away, like cancer care. So it's either test and trace or it can't. You can't have everything. So I think the government is now looking at it and going, if we don't get back to normal and the economy functions, we are running into serious economic difficulties. With that's coming the inflationary pressures and the cost pressures. So you've got that problem. We've got areas where we said we fundamentally made errors. People called for school closures. And then now we're seeing the great revision, aren't you? People now have thought something, oh, school closures was a really seriously bad idea. And I'm going, well, why were you calling for it? Not only when we close schools, the problem is when we close them, we were very slow to open up. Yeah. Easy to start them up, very difficult to roll it back. And if you look at it, we spent in the 2020, took till July before we opened up. Game in 2021, it was like May, wasn't it? We were having this discussion, oh, yeah. it's a bit too early. Maybe we go a bit. And actually, that, again, was a significant mistake. As we opened up, yes, the infection came back. And as we've gone into this winter, what I think the government has done is say, we cannot afford to keep restrictions going. Remembering with all our technologies – all of our innovations, we're looking at one of the longest pandemics we've ever seen in the last century, if we're not careful. So at some point, somebody's got to bring it to an end. That end is now slowly happening. Mm. Ultimately, it will require somebody like the WHO to call it to an end. Mm. That will be the end, if you like, from a global phenomenon. But I think we as a society, 
will slowly unpick some of the issues. What's interesting is, I say this a lot, with evidence-based medicine, we always get there in the end. The issue is how many people do you harm on the way? And what's happening now is people are seriously starting to question things. Oh, hold on a minute. Is it airborne? Piece in the Guardian yesterday saying, hold on a minute. This seems to disintegrate if you do a real world study versus very many of the artificial studies. Do maths work in schools? Hmm. Well, actually, if you look at it, how come if maths offer an 80% reduction in infection rate, we've had two to three million people with an infection in a week? At the point we decided to intervene, cases went up. Now, this is an important point, Brandon. This is interesting. If I go to you, let's go before the pandemic. I'd say to you, in a normal year, how many viral infections would you get as an individual? One, maybe two, maybe three in a bad year. Mm. Now, if you think about that, 57 million people in England. In a good year, if we only get one, that's 57 million. But if people have children or working places like primary schools or work in urgent care, you could probably double that. So that's 114, 115 million. Remembering there are more than coronaviruses. There are other viruses out there, adenovirus, rhinovirus, influenza, parainfluenza. There are about nine or ten circulating right now. So what that means is when I'm working as an urgent care GP, I can tell you by the people coming in what it looks like out there. And what people are starting to realize is you can step out your door and two to three million people could have a viral infection at any one time. Getting used to that for some people is going to be difficult because it's very anxiety provoking to think, well, you know what you mean? As I go around my normal life in somewhere like London, one in seven, one in 10 people have got a viral infection. There's no chance I'm going to avoid it. Well, actually, that's what happens because every Christmas, basically, most people get this winter illness that actually they take into January. What matters now, though, is identifying the people who are vulnerable and making sure this is the focus protection argument that got completely rubbished, and we can talk about that. How do we think about protecting grandma? What should we do differently in society? And there are significant things we could do differently. Now, coming back to the original point, I think it was quite, I don't know whether they got to the point where they said, we just can't lock down anymore. But actually, I do know there are people in the COVID recovery group, about 100 MPs in the, in the Conservative Party, who basically have been consistent and pushed a position to say, at some point, you're going to have to live with this. And those people have done an excellent job. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about the Steve Bakers of the world, the Ian Duncan Smiths, you know, and I'm not being political here in any way. I'm just saying people have understood what the issues at hand are and push them forward. What's been incredibly disappointing here, apart from a few MPs like Jeremy Corbyn's of the world and people, is the opposition has almost been further to the restriction position, which has made it difficult to have a balanced debate. Over time, that position is going to look increasingly illogical from the left when you said what you've managed to do is make sure those that are most disadvantaged, those that are most frail, most vulnerable, were put in the worst position. And that I can't explain why people on the, le- on the left who are supposed to be out there in a social for community and for those people have said, no, actually, we're going to look after those people who can work from home, sit down on the computer, 
and actually keep themselves safe. Absolutely. Uh, the left's approach to the whole lockdown era has mystified me, I must admit. And you're absolutely right about the opposition too, because the opposition, what's currently happening at the moment is the opposition is laying into Boris Johnson, not without good cause for having all these parties while locking down everyone else. And they're reeling off all these horror stories about how people weren't allowed to visit a dying relative or weren't allowed to go to funerals, weren't allowed to do various different human things. And I always think to myself, but you guys voted for that to be the reality. It's fine to point out the hypocrisy of people in Downing Street, but those things people were prevented from doing is as much down to the opposition and everyone else who lined up behind lockdown as it is to some of the more hypocritical forces around Boris Johnson. But in in relation to the lockdown itself, I want to just um, ask you a few questions about why you put your head above the parapet on the issue of lockdown. And I also do want to come on to the focus protection issue and the way in which people were so thoroughly demonised and almost unpersoned simply for raising these alternative policies. But on the lockdown itself, I want to ask you about your problems with the lockdown. And I think uh, I've obviously read a lot of your stuff. And I think one of the very convincing arguments you make is that lockdowns don't work in the sense that they prolong the pandemic. So it's like kicking the can down the road. You kind of close the cupboard door, but eventually it's going to open again and everything will fly back out. So could you just outline for listeners what it was about lockdown that concerned you and why you thought it was worth raising some serious questions about this policy? So I think there are two things that are different in this pandemic. One is PCR testing Mm. and the second is social media. Remembering we'd have come out and our group of people have worked together, come through the swine flu pandemic. We'd looked at the evidence for Tamiflu. We've worked for four years on that area and we've been interested in these areas. The sort of policies around vaccination, protection and how we do this. So the first is to say you started a pandemic with PCR testing and there are still issues with that. But first is to say you're giving people information that they'd never had before. So if we take away the case data, what would people be thinking right now? You'd be reading a little bit in the papers going, well, there's this issue in uh, hospital is overwhelmed. And you'd be thinking, well, this is like any other winter. So there's that. And then second is the, the sort of overwhelming number of experts who came from nowhere to tell you they had answers and they had certainty about what to do next. And most of that was on the side of caution. What we need to do is lock down, stay in lockdown, and stay in lockdown as long as it takes. We wrote an article in on April the 8th, 2020, called The Tipping Point, which basically questioned that, saying if you're going to take down this route, you're basically going to bankrupt us all at some point, whether that's from mental health, social well-being, or economically, because you cannot think like this. And, and also there was another country like Sweden he was taking a different path. There were places like Florida who were going, well, we're looking at this differently. We're thinking about what do we really need to do differently to protect our population. Going into November 2020, when we met with the government, the perception was by November 2020, we're going to be back to normal. People were saying all sorts of misclassifying and trying to put stuff out there, which the message we were giving the government is this is here to stay. You need to learn to manage it. And in learning to manage it, you need to really think about where all the problems are. 
So for instance, care homes is the number one problem you've got. 30%, one third of all the deaths occur in care homes. So wouldn't you be putting one third of your resources into care homes to try and work out a strategy to reduce that mortality? There are things you can do that the evidence suggests. The number of nurses, the quality of care, having clinical visits, increasing all that can reduce the mortality. Have we done that? No. What we've decided to do is get into a zone where we go, well, actually, maybe we should be vaccinating young people. When you're going, well, how does that actually translate into the older people? Now, when you lock down, what you do is generally reduce the risk in younger people. All the people who are out there who are mobile and out in the world, you reduce their risk and you normalize it across the age. Now, the fundamental principle about pandemics is up till this pandemic. A pandemic means that the infection disproportionately affects younger people. Whereas this virus is seasonal. You could see it. it's like it's operating like the other coronaviruses. The, the mortality in the elderly is so significantly higher than younger people. It's greater than what you see with viruses like influenza, because in influenza, you get deaths in under five. Yeah. So once you understood that basic principle, you go, well, actually, this is more like a seasonal pathogen that's endemic, and we need to manage it like that. So, okay, vaccines are a good way of, of doing that because not that they prevent transmission, they try to affect the severity of the disease in that cohort who are most likely to be affected, the very elderly or those with comorbidities. So you start to produce discussions around this is where we're heading and understanding that. And that, for us, was at great personal cost for all sorts of reasons, mm. not least for some members of like at the heart of uh, the advisors of government decided to take us on and say, we want to discredit you. But actually all we've done is that the position we've taken has been very similar throughout in terms of how do you look at this? Now you talked interestingly about that issue. For instance, I'll give you a good example of where policy for me completely got it wrong. It's care homes. Care homes locked people out. It didn't stop the infection getting into care homes. If you look in somewhere like Oxfordshire, 80% of the care homes had the outbreak in the f- within the first wave. If you look at throughout this, it's more or less every care home has had an outbreak. In fact, if you'd have tried to get it in care homes, you couldn't have done any better. Yeah. And there are things that we're doing like locums, letting them move around multiple care homes that doubles or trebles your risk of outbreaks because they move from one to the other. But what by stopping an advocate, I, I consider everybody who's vulnerable requires an advocate. And that advocate might be your son, your daughter, or your husband. That person goes into a care home. When you're unwell, they make sure you eat. They make sure you drink. They make sure you contact the doctor because they go, well, a leg thread. Or she's a bit more confused than normal. And then I come in and go, oh, yeah, she's got a urinary tract infection. You remove that advocate. All of that goes out the window. Now, for me, that is unacceptable. So when we're talking about mathematicians telling me about what to do in healthcare, I'm telling you about what it's right on the ground urgent care. Now, for me, one of the key elements is I do my job in the week as a professor of EBM and a clinical epidemiologist, and then at the weekend, I do my urgent care job. I can triangulate the data. It's not just a graph. It's what does it look like on the ground? 
when you go into these care homes? What does it look like as people are ringing 111 and coming in for appointments? What's the reality on the ground? No mathematical model would ever see that issue. What happens if you remove the advocacy role? And we did a report just before Christmas on care homes that showed this is a global phenomenon. The disinvestment in social care and care homes is, it is a scandal. Mm-hmm. And in many parts of the world, in places like Canada and Spain, it required the army to be called in as care home people. I don't blame them because imagine you go back to last May and you're on eight pound an hour and somebody says, we've got an outbreak of COVID in our care home. Oh, and by the way, it's, it's, it's the plague and you're going to die if you're not careful. In some parts, 60% of people in some homes, and this is places like Italy, just left. Mm-hmm. Basically abandoned people. At that point, we should have been talking about, right, where's the army? Where are the clinical care? Where are our extra nurses? How do we help these people? In fact, what we were doing is saying, let's just make sure nobody can find out what's going on. That, I find, is the true issue that makes me carry on trying to explain to people, this is actually what happens when you go in to see what healthcare is like. We have let, when you go around some of these care homes, the people working in them are amazing, but the infrastructure, the amount spent on some of them is wholly inadequate and not fit for purpose. So that's a third of the problem. I could have talked to you about one of the things that happened now is Boris Johnson has just mentioned the Prime Minister, well, we've got a problem with hospital-acquired infection. Well, there's another 20% yeah. of the problem, maybe yeah. more, 30%. Now, and so you go, well, 18 months, two years in, we're starting to mention the problems that were quite apparent very early on. So if you were in hospital, you were in there already because you were quite sick. You may have had a stroke. You may have had a heart attack. You may have cancer. And what happens is the inadequacy of our buildings, which are open wards, not fit for purpose. Think of in some of London, then skyscrapers, up and down ventilation, lift gas. You might as well say, you come in this building, you will get this infection. Therefore, that's what contributed to the skyrocketing in death in the hospital populations. And I think, you know, when you look at it like that, is a debate has not been had because it's been very easy to shut down the debate and go, look, we're shutting you down because what we need to do is lock down until we get to a point we can manage this disease out of extinction. And all of these people who are zero COVID are now revising what their position is. And somehow in this modern era, if you take this worst case scenario or you're on the side of caution, you seem to get away with catastrophic errors. That if you're on the other side, yep. even the minute thing you say will be picked up on. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. With most providers like iTunes or Spotify, it's really easy to do with just one click. And if you get this show via YouTube, then make sure you not only subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel, but that you also click the bell so that you are alerted to every new episode. I actually wanted to ask you about care homes and you've outlined some very good points there. To my mind, the care homes issue is in many ways the great scandal of this health crisis because as you've described, um, care home residents were not protected at the set from the virus 
at the same time, they were protected from their own family and friends and the people who understand them, who for long periods of time were not not allowed to visit, not allowed to uh, check in. So it was really the worst of all worlds. People were not allowed in to see their loved ones. The virus was allowed in or came in and caused lots of death and destruction. And that that figure that you've talked about, where uh, around 1% of elderly people are in care homes, but around a third of the deaths, COVID deaths in Europe were in care homes. I mean, that really should force us to ask some serious questions about how we treat older, vulnerable communities. Um, But in relation to the care homes question, I wanted to uh, throw open the issue of focused protection a little bit, because one of the reasons the care homes scandal horrified me so much in in 2020 and, and 2021 is because it was taking place precisely at the same time that we were continually told that focus protection was impossible. Anyone who raised it was just an idiot who wanted the virus to let rip and wanted people to die. And I wanted to grab people by the scruff of the neck and say, can't you see that we are failing to have a focused protection on the most vulnerable people in our society, i.e. people in care homes, and deaths there were skyrocketing. So just outline for us how you would have seen focused protection working and what that phrase means to you and why you think there was such a hostile response to people who suggested it early in the pandemic. Yeah, so, you know, a colleague of mine is one of the people, is Sunetra Gupta, who's a professor of theoretical epidemiology. So all she does is think about the circulation of viruses. It's not like she came up from nowhere and thought, oh, this is an interesting idea. And I've talked to her regularly, and we discuss these issues. So the first point is to say, why wasn't it on the table for discussion? And given the disproportionate effect, as we've said, in the elderly population, surely you should have been thinking if you're investing 400 billion, you could actually put more money into care. You know, so for instance, those at home who have social care, often they may have one social care person to about 20 people. Well, actually, that increases the risk across all 20 because if they're going to see one. So why not invest, for instance, in one, one carer, one person and put your testing there? for that person so they can test themselves. In care homes, exactly the same. While we were doing all this testing out in the community, you're going, well, actually, the fundamental focus is to try and do two things. Either one is you try and keep the infection out. Now, that is very difficult to do because over a period of two years, at some point, you're probably going to get an outbreak. But you can try certain features while you've got the height of the pandemic, the epidemic, like now. So if you've got this eight-week period where you get cases going up exponentially and coming down, your risk has gone up. Now, some care homes, we're trying this. What about paying people a significant amount of money to become living carers for for eight weeks? I'm sure there's a lot of people out there. We could pay them three, four thousand pounds a week, pay them a proper wage and say for the next eight weeks, we need you to be in this care home and we're going to keep it okay for this six or eight-week period. That's it. Now, you could try these things, but they were never on the table, were they? The second issue, though, is once you accept that people, the infection gets in there, the key is people who have these infections often have a difficulty clearing the infection. That's because they get older, you get this problem called immunosenescence. Basically, you've got an immune system there, but it's a bit like an old car, which you have to wind up to get Mm. going. And it takes quite a bit of time. And by the time you get symptoms, 
you're often very late in the infection. So they don't get traditional high fevers and the cough. They may just get a little bit confused. The problem is if you've got things like dementia, within 24, 48 hours, you stop drinking because you lose your first sensation. You get confused, you get dehydrated, and you can die of renal failure. So what you need is somebody going in and going, I'm going to sit with you three times a day for an hour just to keep you drinking, keep you eating, keep looking after you. Now, that's what you do clinically. The problem is I was going into care homes and I'm going, so there's one of you and how many patients are you looking after? 20. How many of them have got COVID? Eight. So basically those eight people are confined to their rooms and you're trying to go around 20 people. Mm. Now it doesn't take much. So how do you feed somebody? Well, you can't because if you give everybody 10 minutes, there's 200 minutes and you've gone through nearly, you know, three hours has gone. So somebody, somebody not doing basic care and support because the reason you run into trouble when you're older is you run out of physiological reserves. You get dehydrated, you stop eating, you get fatigued. So we need a little bit of oxygen, proper nutrition, proper support, recognition of complication, daily visit from a clinician, saves lives. There's evidence of that. All of that is focused protection. All of that costs money, but it's a fraction of the $37 billion for testing trace. Now, you talked about it. So you got 30% of the problem. About 1%, about half a million people in England are in care homes, about 15,000 care homes. The government, I think, decided to spend about 800 million. It's a drop in the ocean to what you should have been spending to solve that problem. And if you think of the 400 billion, you haven't even spent 1% on care homes, despite the fact it's 30% of the problem. Now, what I think this tells us, Brendan, is, that actually this is the message, and I've heard this repeated throughout ages, that a society that doesn't understand how to look after elders generally deserves everything it gets. And I think that's a crucial issue for us to think through. If we can't respect our elders in society, think about how we care for them. Well, maybe we deserve a a society which actually throws all of these problems at us. Because that's where the wise people live and the the experience and the expertise can tell you and go, yeah, I lived through the 1960s when we had the, you know, the pandemic then. And actually, we all went about our daily business. And that's what older people were going, well, you know, the ones I was speaking to, what's the panic? And I think we have to be cognizant of that because the problem is elderly people are often out of our mind, aren't they? You know, out of sight, out of mind. And... I bet in any street around you, there's an elderly person living alone who basically he's slightly struggling. They have some infection. They end up in hospital. They're a case. That's what drives the numbers. And it's generally that over 75s is part of the major problem that we've got to think about, particularly as you get an aging society. Mm. You've got to really think about this because it can't, you know, in the 60s, the idea of over 80s was not a bigger problem as it is now given the proportion of people who are living to that age group, and it's due to increase. All of these are features that we have to think about, which, again, is not going to be thought about by people who just do mathematics. Absolutely. I think that's that's very well put. And I think if we if we come out of this pandemic without thinking about how much care workers get paid, how much they are respected, the conditions of care homes, I think then we have made a very grave mistake and will not learn 
from our error. So I hope those, those issues change and that discussion changes in the way that you've outlined there. So in relation to the focused protection idea, which sounds very reasonable and civilized to a great many of us, of course, the response to it was pretty intense. So you've mentioned Sunitra Gupta, uh, and then there were others around the Great Barrington Declaration who I was so shocked by the way in which they were treated. These were as you know perfectly well, these are very serious academics who put forward an alternative way of dealing with the virus in perfectly good faith. And they were monstered, they were demonized. I know that Professor Gupta received hatred and hate mail and threats and all sorts of abuse. How do you explain that intolerance? Because of course, another aspect of the pandemic was a clampdown on freedom of speech. You know this, videos have been taken down, articles have been taken down off social media for allegedly spreading misinformation. People have been demonized as wanting old people to die simply for questioning the policy of lockdown. How do you explain why there was such a severe intolerance of anyone who criticized the mainstream policy and suggested there might be a different way of doing things? So I think in the general population, there's a significant problem of instilling fear and anxiety. At a level, that's a social media phenomenon and the 24-7 news phenomenon. Remember the pictures like coming out of Italy mm-hmm. of we're running out of morgue space, we're running out of coffins, and over time we're learning, mm, actually some of this is artificially manufactured. This whole scenario has been put in people. And I remember going into work sometimes, and this is a triangulation going, this is going to be terrible. You know, looking at the media, I'm going to walk into work eight o'clock Saturday morning. We are going to be overwhelmed. And actually, number one problem is I'm going, it's never been as quiet. Going back to May 2020, when the parties were going on in Downing Street, actually, in the urgent care setting, it was quiet that I've never seen anything like it. So not only does it have the fear and anxiety problem, of, you know, creating people thinking about, oh, I'm going to get an infection and I'm going to panic. But what it did do is stop people, you know, integrating with normal healthcare behaviors. So people were sat at home with chest pains going, I'm not going to the urgent care, the hospital. That's where the plague is. I'm, I remember, you know, 90% of people who have a stroke, who live alone, get discovered by another person. Because if you live alone and you have a stroke, you can't ring up anybody. You're on the floor. You require somebody coming in. We've stopped all them normal behaviors. So the first thing is to say there was an anxiety and fear created that made people, I think, say things that were actually, uh, you know, they will look back and regret. The problem from a political level and an academic level, there were many people who couldn't tolerate uncertainty and still don't understand what is happening. Because all they're doing is using the headlines to drive their next behaviors and passing them on. And there's a swathe of people who've come to the fore who create more of that anxiety and fear without standing back. And and the way I relate it to people, it's a bit like when I get a trainee, yeah, and they start the job. Every child they see, they go, they've got to go to hospital. Because they go, they're unwell, they've got a fever, they're looking well, they've got a high respiratory rate, they're going to die. And we have to give them expertise and experience. They go, oh, hold on a minute, let's just let's just examine them. Oh, actually, it's not too bad, is it? Oh, actually, maybe we can have a plan and maybe we don't need to, uh, to, to refer them. 
And actually, that's what experience and expertise does for you, doesn't it? It allows you to deal with uncertainty. And in dealing with uncertainty, you come to different decisions about what happens next. You step back. So one of the things I kept saying to policy was, just step back. Stop rushing because you're like the doctor who just refers everybody in. Well, actually, over time, you're basically going to burn out. You're not going to learn anything. And you're going to keep perpetuating this defensive type practice. So what's happening? The experience is kicking in. It's took two years for the policy people to start to go, hmm, we're getting used to what happens here. The modelers say it's going to go bad. We then wait a bit. And actually in waiting a bit, actually we suddenly see the divergence. That creates an issue where it allows you to think dealing with uncertainty, our ability to do that is, is the most important aspect in many aspects of our life. But actually, we're very bad at it. And it seems the anxiety and fear people want to create certainty. No, actually, if we're locked down, you can do this. Now, that position stifled debate. And in stifling debate is creating a significant amount of harms. And they were never brought because normally when you make a decision, you don't say we're going to lock down because the only thing we're aware of is COVID. You go, well, okay, you could bring in the economic issues. Okay, fine. That's not. What about societal well-being? What about mental health? What about education? What about all the other diseases? And all of them were not accounted for in the decision about what happens next. What about the impact you have on people, the way you behave? If you give them a fear and anxiety message, are you happy for people with chest pain then to stay at home because they're too scared to engage with healthcare? Is that what you're proposing? None of that was debated. All of that in this next year now has to be brought on the table to make sure we don't make these mistakes again. What happened in October 2020 is we went to a meeting at the Houses of Parliament and after that, is there were certain people there, including Prime Minister, Chancellor, people like Dominic Cummings, and I think they wanted that meeting to lead to a lockdown, a two-week circuit breaker. And what was on the table is we we're going to have a two-week circuit breaker, we we're going to get cases below a 1,000, and we were going to keep them below a 1,000 forever with a super test and trace system. And we were just going, that's not going to happen. You're already trying this in certain areas. It's not working. After that, there became a campaign to discredit people who had views that were against that position. Despite the fact some people still say there's a very simple answer. (laughs) And it's interesting, there have been people who've been advisors or people in the pundits who've wrote articles going, for instance, Germany has a solution. Three weeks later, Germany cases are through the roof. (laughs) Asia has a solution. Oh, by the way, they don't. So what you find is we're all in different time zones of where the exponential phase is happening. And that's the same in England. There are different phases of what's happening. And so it's really interesting when people go, England is not the same. For instance, why does Cornwall have to behave like London? Radically different case rates, radically different impact when you think of the density as one simple phenomenon. Now, even to the point where Conservative MPs were putting in websites to try and discredit people, not just us, but journalists. And if you look at what they were writing, you look back and you go, hmm, you should be discrediting yourself at this moment (laughs) in time. Because everything we were putting out there has been shown over time. And we was pretty clear, because all I was saying was, 
you should be using the evidence, you should be looking at the data, and you should be understanding when you have uncertainty or not in your decision-making. I don't mind if people say you're going to wear masks. What I mind is, is are they saying it from an informed point of view, from a high-quality evidence base or not? Yeah. And I think what was happening is people were retrofitting, and they're still doing that now with the Department of Education, poor quality evidence to say it justifies the policy. I do think we have a major issue in society with freedom of speech going forward. And I think it's, um, is there a number of things through this pandemic for which legislation is required? And I think for what I consider media outlets, because social media outlets like Twitter and Facebook should be regulated like media organizations, they should not be able to, if it's within the bounds of the law, pull people down. Second, I think if you're going to intervene in certain settings, such as schools or care homes, you should have to demonstrate clear benefit to that population with high-quality evidence to be able to intervene. In the absence of that, there needs to be legislation to prevent policymakers just having an act, a coronavirus act, that says we can literally do what we want within the bounds of this act. So I think there are key bits of legislation now required and within the confines of free speech, I now think this is one of the most important aspects. Then I think it's interesting, you know, again, a bit, you know, I'm in my 50s now. And I remember, you know, coming through an era in the 60s and the 70s, particularly in the 70s, when we were instilled that your ability to be part of a debate, put your point of views out there, is the fundamental right of a democracy. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do that, you're not in a democracy. So I think these are the sorts of things that the backbench MPs and people should be really coalescing to go, we need fundamental changes in our democracy in the face of an internet that in some ways thinks it can police free speech, which I, you know, at the end of the day is going to be seen as one of the things that needs to be sorted. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the very fact that, California-based corporations can remove content in the UK that it is that it's legal to express and legal to say is simply extraordinary, and I think that that really cannot be allowed to stand. Can I give you an example of that? We wrote an article in the Spectator on face mask. That article was wrote with Tom Jefferson. Tom Jefferson is I've worked with Tom Jefferson for about fifteen years now. We were authors on the Cochrane reviews on antiviral Tamiflu and we published jointly together. But he has spent the last three decades putting together systematic reviews on interventions in acute respiratory infections. And for 20 years has been the author of the Cochrane Review on non-pharmaceutical interventions. He was aware that the day before the Danmas trial, because we were contacting them and talking to the authors, the Cochrane Review was coming out and the Danmas at the same time. So we were probably the only couple of people in the world that knew that at that point. They both got published, and we had an article ready saying, if you look at this evidence, here's how it fits. I can tell you how you can add the data from the Denmask into the data from acute respiratory infections and look at the heterogeneity. I can tell you all sorts of analytical things that show you, actually, the results are pretty similar to what we already knew. The effects, it's just not there when you do it in the real world in randomized control trials compared to observation, which is radically different. We wrote that article, Facebook, take it down. Now, how can you have 
some fact checker who basically might or might not have a, a master's or not in the background saying, I can tell you that actually I can check your article, despite the fact you've got two decades of experience of putting this review together. You know every single study, you knew what was happening, and that's our job, and you can take that down. Now, my point was to say, you know, if there's a problem, tell us what the problem is. Mm. Where's the error? Not we looked at this and fact check it. Now, what happens as well is many people now don't read the articles. They just take the headline or the response and say, right, let's self-perpetuate this myth. This is factually incorrect. There is no incorrect problem within it whatsoever. Not least it's been investigated, completely cleared. Now, that's happened subsequent to many organizations who want to discuss and clarify what is science is questioning observations, experiments, and findings. That's our job. And I think there's something wrong, like you say, with corporations that pay their people a lot of money that are trying to save face in some way, that are actually funding people to produce a particular message. That, to me, seems anti-democratic. Spiked couldn't do what we do without the generosity of listeners and readers like yourself. Those of you who donate £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year are eligible to become a Spiked supporter. Being a Spike supporter gives you access to a whole range of perks, including discounted or free tickets to all our events, discounts in our shop, and the ability to bookmark and comment on articles. So become a Spike supporter today by going to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. The point you make about freedom of speech being central to democracy is is so true. And also, my view is that freedom of speech and freedom of thought become more important in a crisis rather than less important, because unless you can have everything on the table, all the policy ideas, all the proposals for how to deal with this problem, then you're not really going to be able to come to the best answers, the best solutions. So I think people often underestimate how dangerous the culture of intolerance can be in terms of coming up with the right policies that fit the problem that we find ourselves in. And so censorship, I think, you know, one of the most preposterous claims that was made about people like yourself and others who criticised lockdown or who supported focused protection, you had these absolutely shrill journalists saying, oh, they've all got blood on their hands. But actually, it's the crushing of debate and policy discussion which is more likely to lead us down problematic routes and mean that we can't get a handle on the problems that we face. So I think that's a, that's a very important point. I just have um, two more questions I want to ask you, if I may. The first is in relation to vaccines. And one of the things that has worried me most about the current, uh, the, the fear-mongering around Omicron that we saw in December in particular I mean, I think the modelling has been problematic for a long time. I think the culture of fear has been problematic from March 2020 onwards. But I think the the reason it, it really struck me as a problem in December 2021 is that I think it will have made a lot of people think to themselves, well, why did I bother getting vaccinated? I mean, I people have said that to me. I, I'm very much in favor of the vaccination program. I am vaccinated myself and I think it's a very good thing. And it's obviously helped us to defeat the worst consequences of the COVID uh, pandemic. 
But when you have these fear mongers say, essentially saying it doesn't really make any difference, the death rate will be higher than it's ever been before. We really are screwed. I think they underestimate uh, how badly they are impacting upon this wonderful national effort of vaccinating people, which the vast bulk of the population stood behind and took part in. So don't you think there's a danger there that the more that they cling to this fear script, the more they will actually undercut the wonderful scientific progress that we have lived through over the past year or so? Yeah, I, so I've heard that. You know, you've, we've done everything you've asked us to do. Mm. We've, we've stayed at home when you've asked us. We've worn masks when we've asked us. And we've got vaccinated in droves that we've never seen before across all of the adult population. And in doing so, you're now telling us it's made no difference because we need to lock down again. Not least, it's interesting, if you look at the concepts of variants before 2020, there's hardly anything published about variants. The whole name, it's a variant of concern, again adds to the fear and anxiety. As opposed to it, it's a variant of evolution that we should expect to see and continue to expect to see. And that actually, it explains why we keep getting reinfected year on year. The discussion should go a bit like this. What happens in a pandemic like this is you're facing a new a new viral virus that can infect the whole population means that whole population is susceptible. That means all the young people who would have picked it up in their, in their teens and as children haven't got that immunity. And as we go into adulthood, we are vulnerable because of its impact potentially for the first time we face it, it could give us severe disease. But as we face it multiple times, it will become less and less severe and more like the common cold. We already knew with work from the MRC Common Cold Unit that got disbanded in the 90s, shouldn't have got disbanded, led by David Tyrrell, that coronaviruses can reinfect you. We wrote an article, Tom and I, about can Boris get reinfected. They showed at one year you reinfect people, but actually a high proportion of them are asymptomatic or have mild disease. Because what happens is, yeah, the virus evolves, and it evolves for a number of reasons, depending on the environment, depending on the stability, always most molecules looking for a more stable format. And as it goes into you, it can come out differently. People don't talk about that and say, oh, so it goes in and it comes out slightly different. Yeah, it does. You understand that basic principle. But what we've done now is brought whole genomic sequencing, which again has its errors, it's probabilistic and it's modeling and said, oh, we can now identify for the first time new variants and call them variants of concern. They're always named on the way up, but actually on the way down now, do you go, actually, it's not a variant of concern. We got that wrong again, because actually it was mild. It didn't cause a problem. So, yeah, you've created this structure for which it's now a sort of, it's a sort of industry to try and get into the media to get our viewpoint across. And you look at it and you think, what are you trying to achieve? Are you just trying to impose restrictions on society? Now, the other thing to think of where we are in the world, which does bother me, there are significant competing interests when people make decisions. There are significant commercial and financial decisions that are impacted on what happens next. And all of this goes into the mix when people are speaking. Because for some people, it's in their interest to keep this going. For many of us in society, 
And nothing better for us to be talking about cancer care, mental health, all the things that matter. I'd much rather be talking about that and get on with life. But this undermining of the interventions, it's not just the vaccines. What about all the other treatments, dexamethasone, antivirals, immunological therapies? What about all them? We've got all them in place. And so you start to ask questions. What is the problem? And why are you trying to take this line? And there seems to be no accountability for getting it wrong. It's not just the modelers. It's the advisors who then come on the back of that. What I've been surprised is they haven't gone, yeah, we know how to deal with uncertainty. That's one viewpoint. We've got a much more optimistic viewpoint here that actually says this is more likely to be what will happen. I know they predicted this, but actually if we take 10% of that, we'll be more likely to be near the truth. Why that's not happened is not clear to me. And that suggests that there needs to be a rethink about the people in the room helping politicians make decisions. And this is crucial. I speak, like you said, I speak to a lot of politicians throughout this. I never try to tell anybody what to do. I never try to tell a patient what to do, apart from in a couple of scenarios. And then scenarios are, for instance, you're on the floor unconscious, you had a heart attack, I'm going to take over. Most of what we're trying to do is inform the decision you're about to make to help you reduce the uncertainties to make a better informed decision about the treatments you take. So what's the role if all I came into you and said, by the way, Brendan, I know you've come to see me today in healthcare, but actually the worst case scenario is you're going to be dead in seven days. Mm-hmm. By the way, I have all these treatments that can help you out. Here they are, antihypertensive, cholesterol-lowering, aspirin. You could take all these treatments and you will live another 30 years. No, actually, what we do is say, here's what I understand the benefits and the harms and your risks. Now, one of the key things I say to people is, at this moment in time, two years in, as you go out the front door and you face all of the risks around you, do you understand those risks? And do people understand? And what's happening is they qualitatively understand it. So the younger people have gone, we're starting to understand our risk. It's very low. We can go about our lives. Some of the people in the older category have gone, ooh, actually, you know, I get my risk is a bit higher and I'm worried. And actually the problem is most of those people in their 50s and 60s who think they have a higher risk are actually often in positions of power. And I actually think what's happened in this pandemic They've been enacting policies based on their own risks. Now, what's interesting about this, when you get to the very elderly, they often understand their risk, but are less worried about it because they go, look, I've had my time. I just, it's all about quality. I don't need another 10 years, 20 years. I just want to have a year, which is high quality. I do want to meet my grandchildren. So what happens, and this is the unconscious bias that I think has pervaded this pandemic, when people are enacting on a society behaviors that reflect their own risks. And that is essentially the problem here. And that has to be disentangled because that's what it comes down. What is your risk perception and how are you going to behave next? That's a very good point. Okay, uh, Carl, my final question for you is, you used a phrase earlier on, which really struck me, which was the great revision. And I've noticed something similar where I think we're slowly seeing people 
turn their backs on things they said and did, and possibly even denying that they were supporters of particular policies. And I think there is a, it's not really taking form yet, but I think it will over a period of time. People are kind of distancing themselves somewhat from the crazier elements of the lockdown, from the worst aspects of the lockdown, and from some of the policies that we've seen over the past two years. Do you think that will intensify this this revisionist understanding of what happened? And will you personally find that frustrating as someone who knows that actually the number of people who were questioning policy was relatively small and too many people went along with it in an unquestioning way? There's quite a lot in that, Brendan, isn't there? I think first from a, a frustrating way, most of what my frustration comes from comes from what we're doing to people like in care homes or the people who are most disadvantaged or people on low wage. I, you know, I'm all right for it. I could have just taken a nice, cautious position. But when I look in society, it reminds me a lot of what it was like in the 1980s. We'd come out of the 70s when everybody was very poor and then we got into the 80s and it was a bit more like everybody's in it for themselves and everybody's looking after themselves and we lost focus around community. And we had the yuppies and the great sell-offs and, you know, and all of that which came with that. And, and, and it feels like that now. When you get to a point where you're in a position, everybody's got to a point where they're looking inward, thinking about themselves, and we've lost community. However, at the beginning of this, people went in with a very great – a million people wanted to volunteer, didn't they? But we said, no, you can't volunteer. You've got to lock down. So we broke that societal. So, so first is we should come out of this and, and understand the great importance of social cohesion. It's um, importance of what I also call what are called pro-social behaviors. And they're protective for your mental health. It means how do I help the people around me and do things for them? Just simple things like open the door for you can make me feel better. You know, help somebody with their shopping to the car. All of the things that we normally do make us feel good about ourselves. Well, you can't do them if you're in lockdown, can you? So we need to come out of this in a social cohesion way to say all of this matters to us. And we need to start to fix that. And we need to fix it with the people who are the most vulnerable, like in care homes. The great revision, though, worries me because... It's a bit like we've we've dumbed down evidence at the expense of people who are media savvy and opinionated, and they're to the fore, and they're out there. And I listen to people, and I, I still see it now, and I, I read an article the other day by a journalist. I just go, you can't say that. You're just too certain. You don't understand the basics of problem and healthcare to be able to say definitively this is the issue. Now, those people are going to have to unravel a lot of that because they were very certain about their positions. Yeah. And, and we have to think now in an era with the internet, how do we now deliver and develop the internet and how we communicate in a society where we've shown it can go badly wrong very quickly? Because what I see is a whole swathe, and this is what, what other concerns me, and I'm going to try and work towards is, the concept of academic freedom has gone out the window. And if I had Sinetra Gupta here, we'd have this discussion, which would go a bit like this. Yeah, they've had a go of us, but we're okay. You know, we're, if, but what the problem is, is the people coming through have looked what's happened and gone, I can't speak out. 
But what's happened to Sinatra Gupta or Carl Henninger? I can't say the truth. So in the background, thousands of people email me, contact me, tell me all sorts of positions, email me stories going, I'm a paramedic. I just delivered somebody from the hospital. This is May 2020 with COVID, gets to the door of the care home. They've not got a single shred of, of, of PPE. And I'm going, can you go on the record for this? No, can't. I'll lose my job. People will lose the job in the NHS or in university for speaking out. Now, again, what does that say about society? So what's happened is this small group of people who've been very media savvy, very opinionated, have dominated the narrative and will have to revise their position. But over here, there's an awful lot of people who basically we need to mobilize to be able to come in and say it's okay to stick your neck out. And in doing so, yeah, there'll be short-term damage but actually, over the medium and long term, if you stick to what you believe in, you stick to informing people, not telling them what to do, informing them, you'll be okay. As soon as you start to tell people what to do, society should react against that and say we're not standing for it. And that's the problem with restrictions and mandates, isn't it? You're telling people what to do, you're not informing them. Carl, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.